You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Hey, everyone. If you haven't already heard about it, Canada's biggest impact investment conference called the Social Finance Forum is coming up from March 7th to 9th in downtown Toronto at the Mars Center. It's now in its 11th year, and the conference really brings the best and the brightest, um, not only from Canada, really, but from all over the world to Toronto to talk social finance. I'm going to be participating in a panel discussion with actually last episode's guest, uh, Alexa Blaine of Deepkin Impact, and we're going to be joined by Dan Miodovnik from Social Finance UK, and we're going to be talking about what changes need to occur in order for impact investing to reach mainstream investors. So if you're interested in impact investing, there's really no better place to network and to learn. Uh, So come on out to the conference. You can register at www.socialfinanceforum.ca. I hope to see you there. Hey, everyone. It's David O'Leary, and we're back for another episode of the Impact Investing Podcast. Today on the show, we have Jonathan Hera, who is founder and managing partner of Marigold Capital. And by way of background, Jonathan has a load of incredible experiences on his resume, working with some of the most impressive organizations and people working in the field of social finance. Um, Jonathan started Marigold as an impact advisory firm, helping private foundations, family offices, corporations, all organizations like that make the move into impact investing. Uh, And recently, though, Marigold launched its own uh, impact fund and is in the process of raising capital for that. So without further ado, Jonathan, welcome. Hi, David. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to have you on. I've been aware of you for longer than for quite some time and been excited to get a chance to, to finally meet. For context, for people listening, you're actually sitting on the uh, investment committee of World Vision Social Venture Fund, which which I sit on as well. And so we haven't had, uh, I think you missed the first meeting. Unfortunately, we weren't able to make it. So we um, will connect at the second one. But uh, this is exciting for me. Yeah, no, me too, which is, it's a great opportunity. I'm really excited to be to be a part of it. So thanks for having me. And I was just rec- recollecting earlier today with um, some colleagues about the, the evolution of the space. And speaking of sort of the, the two degrees of separation, mm-hmm. and it's interesting to note that um, I met Matu, who's on your team, mm-hmm. um, many years ago when I was on the board. I'm still on the board, and I see of a, an organization called the Youth Social Innovation Capital Fund. And part of that organization was Jory Cohen, who's now part of the Inspirit Foundation, running their impact investments. Liat Gellis, who's um, portfolio manager at Grand Challenges Canada. Saeed Azaki, who's now at JCC as well. And Matu who's now at World Vision. So it's really interesting to see the, the, space, the space is small, but it's really fantastic to see how such a small organization like YSI has been able to, been able to um, provide a platform so, for so many people. Anyway, that's a bit of an aside, but it was a, a really neat reflection to see how the space has sort of evolved over the last five, six years. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's, it is very cool. Um, it's, it's both a uh, small... So- Sort of still nascent in, um, sector and industry, but growing quickly, and so some pretty um, amazing people on it. So it's always fun to sort of see and find those, as you say, those few degrees of separation between everybody. Yeah. So, what can you give everybody a quick introduction to you know who you are, your background, what you guys do over at Marigold Capital? 
Sure. Uh, I'll make this as brief as, as possible. It's super interesting to me, of course, but <laughs> maybe not to everybody else, right? Um, I was born in Kitchener, Waterloo, to a single mother. Um, I'm the only child, uh, first-generation Canadian. Grew up in lower-income, lower-middle-class-income neighborhood. Uh, a really common story, I think, for so many Canadians. Small family. The rest of the family that we had was still in Hungary or Germany, a little bit in Canada. So there was this feeling of um, really deep connection to my mother, but not so much with many other people. And so friends that I immediately had were also newcomers um, or marginalized populations that I kind of related to. And uh, I'm, I'm, and by the way, I'm looking back and connecting dots. It's not as though all this was super clear to me as I was a child or a teenager and so forth. Um, grew up in Kitchener-Waterloo and started to volunteer a lot with community um, development groups along the way, wanting to give back something. And I'm not really sure why. I wanted to reach out and connect. I'm not really sure why. Ended up going to school, chemical physics, the University of Guelph, and hated it. And transferred eventually to McGill um, in political science and loved it. Really focused on international development um, with the focus on the Middle East. My graduate thesis is actually on the subversive elements of the new Iranian cinema which is a fascinating topic. And I didn't actually speak Farsi at the time, nor do I now, but I, I learned it sort of along the way. And so I was really looking at the capitalist system, didn't really feel a part of it, and was kind of picking at it from a political policy sort of angle um, through some of the international development and community development work I was doing. Bumping along a little bit, I ended up working for many nonprofits, both here in Canada and abroad, on my route to discovering microfinance realizing that working on the frontline grassroots uh, within these organizations was fantastic, but I might not actually be altering too many systems um, from within by doing so. And so microfinance was my first foray into uh, playing with how that might actually change by using finance as a tool for social change. I fell in love with microfinance, ended up working with a microfinance institution, raising capital for it, helping build it, um, worked for the microfinance think tank called CGAP at the World Bank, so sort of on the ground as well as 2,000 million miles removed in D.C., and that led me to discover uh, small and medium enterprise financing or impact investing. I had a chance to work with Serona Asset Management, which is based in Waterloo, um, private equity fund of funds, you know, providing uh, growth stage capital to fund managers to then fund their own companies and their own portfolios. I then was the founding fund manager of RBC Generator Fund, which was the first FI in Canada to, to launch an impact investing anything. And so that was a fantastic initiative for domestic footprint. I then had a chance to build and lead an investment process and team at an organization called Grand Challenges Canada which I jumped at, of course, and I was there for three years. And on the heels of that, launched Marigold Capital in April of 2017. So the, there's no, it's a very long linear trajectory. Um, but I would say that I would, I've been extremely fortunate. I've worked hard, but I've also been extremely fortunate to, to work for such bleeding edge organizations, all very different mandates, sizes, for-profit, non-profit, whatever, but all bleeding edge organizations within the Canadian impact landscape. And Marigold now, we're looking at a few different things. We're raising our own fund, which I'm happy to talk about, which uses a gender or diversity and inclusion lens in all of its deals. We're fairly early stage, coming in at seed and pre-series A sort of financing. But everything that we do uh, is holistic in our approach. We, we often say that um, everything is material. 
there are no longer any externalities. The social and the environmental that don't necessarily show up on a balance sheet or an income statement or a cash flow statement, those are material and they need to be captured. And you know, everything being an impact investment is something we've been saying for a long time and slowly, slowly, as I'm sure you know, the market is going that way. And so all we do is look at things as holistically as possible, trying to uncover biases that we have, that the market has, things that are overvalued, we try to undervalue and, and um, course correct, and then make deals that have big markets, big populations that are um, targeting underrepresented um, folks. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, not hoping for the best, but really trying to upend the the two and the eight or the two six two sort of model of traditional VC with the you know the power log models and really trying to play different types of financing to different types of organizations, and this is all based on the work that we're we've learned from at Serona and RBC and GCC. So I'll stop there. It's a really different approach. Like I said, we we've done some consulting work with folks, but we're now in this this fundraising mode, and so. The proof is is in the pudding, so to speak, and we don't have that pudding yet. But we're we've got a thesis, and and we're really curious to to test it out. Oh boy! So there's a lot to unpack <laughs> unpack there. I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. Um, that's that's great. You've got a a, a really impressive um, resume of organizations and experiences. So yeah, I could. There's there's a number of places I could I, I could go from here. Um, maybe just to start, you sort of glossed over this quickly. You said sort of early on you kind of started to have these various experiences where you were, I guess the purpose of what you're doing and making an impact on the world was important to you and you weren't sure why. Is that, is that the case? You just, you're unsure and that's sort of where you leave it. I always find it fascinating to know what makes people sort of start to think and care about what's going on in the world. And for a lot of people, it's kind of modeled yeah. and it's part of their, their upbringing, but for others just at some point in their life, things kind of take a switch. Yeah, so I, I, I'm aware of it now, um, but what I was trying to say is I didn't know going through it. I, I, I wouldn't say it was all premeditated and it was all planned. I think that looking back uh, as an only child raised by a single mother who didn't speak perfect English, who was a factory worker, even though I'm, I'm a cis male born in Canada and I'm aware of my position of privilege, at the time I felt quite marginalized. I didn't really feel a part of the system, to be very frank. and. I somehow felt as though my mother had sacrificed a lot for me. And I also felt as though I needed some greater sense of connection than to just her in the world. And so I wouldn't have been able to articulate that as a 10-year-old or even a 15-year-old, but I, I did feel that. And at many times as a teenager, that was actually a lot of anger. You know, I, mm. uh, to, bit of, to be honest, I was a bit of an activist on the left, on the left wing, I think see my undergrad studies, as I've kind of described uh, to you, to, to be proof of that. And so I was rebelling a little bit, um, but at the same time, trying to connect with my tribe, right? So I was trying to feel bigger than my two-bedroom apartment <laughs> um, by connecting with other things that were bigger than my issues, um, to feel less marginalized. So that came really clear, I would say, in my mid-20s. Um, when I started volunteering with different kinds of organizations and discovering microfinance. But it, I would say that it took me that long to figure out why I was constantly volunteering, um, why I was um, learning new languages. At, the, you know, at that point in my mid-20s, I'd probably traveled to 35 countries or so. I'd studied abroad. I'd worked abroad, really trying to figure out who I was. 
because of this wanting or longing to connect to others. And, you know, Marigold now doesn't look at necessarily too many environmentally oriented investment opportunities. We look almost solely at social, social issues, social solutions. And so that connection now is super clear to me. But as a, as a young boy and as a teenager, it just wasn't. It really wasn't. And so I think you're, you're asking a great question. I think the, my why is clear now looking back, but it just was a really uh, muddy water at the time. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, I think for probably most situations, that's, that's the case. You only, it's that great Steve Jobs commencement speech talking about, you can kind of connect the dots looking, you can only connect the dots looking backwards. Um, yeah. yeah so, I, I mean, I, I'm, I want to get into Marigold and everything. So, uh, but I, I'm really curious, you, you made this comment about, you had this sort of longing to want to connect with others. I, I have this thesis. I'd be, I'd be curious for your reaction to it, that, that, because just for way of background, I, uh, my sense of um, community, I think, was upended when I had my first sort of experience traveling to the developing world, and it was Africa in my case, and it was Sierra Leone in particular. And I spent um, six weeks doing some volunteer work there, and I really came out with a very profound sense of uh, how different uh, the sense of community is in, in at least Sierra Leone, and as it turns out, and I think a lot of a lot of developing world contexts, um, the sense of community is just so radically different, and and how how different that was from what I had experienced, and that the broader point being that I think that um, in the developed world, you know, as your wealth accumulates, and we all have our own property, and we build big houses, and we get busy with work and jobs in the rat race that you sort of grow both physically more distant from the people you live around and, and then emotionally more disconnected. And that that in and of itself is the cause of at least a good number of the, I think, discontents and social unrest and just general, I guess, maybe feeling of unhappiness that people are, are finding themselves in, even among kind of the wealthy. I'm curious whether you think there's any validity to that or not. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I, I, I really don't. Um, I, I remember distinctly feeling, uh, hopefully this isn't too much information, but a lot of times like a victim as a, as a child. Not many people, we, we lived in a big apartment building and we were all essentially anonymous, nameless, you know, ghosts, essentially. We all lived in the same building, but we didn't live together. And I, I, I remember that, you know, as though it were yesterday. And you know, we now live in a community within Toronto where um, it is an older neighborhood. We live in uh, Little Portugal. And so you have a lot of younger families moving in, but you still have a lot of older families. And there, I wouldn't say it's an amazing sense of community uh, compared to some of my experiences, but it's so much better than uh, mm-hmm. many other uh, com- communities or lack of communities within Toronto. And we were striving um, and searching for that, you know, when we moved here and we, we wanted to have our family um, because that's what we, you know, we completely agree with your sentiment, your, your shared experience there. So no, no disagreement there. And, you know, I think, I, I think the interesting potential question would be, so what happens next? How can our potential investments um, go to lowering the physical or emotional or psychological walls, breaking them down over time. That might be really an interesting question, maybe not for me, but for someone else, because it's, it's a fascinating issue that social networking is not necessarily solving. It might just be actually exacerbating issues, of course, and I don't have the answers for it, but I, I, 
Yeah, I, I hear you. It's a big, it's a big question. So we won't, we won't spend the entire podcast talking about that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've, I've, thanks for your thoughts on that. That's interesting. So maybe let's just dive right into. I will circle back maybe through it, the rest because I am interested in your experiences and other places. But um, let's let's get into Marigold and and talk about maybe sort of break it down as much as you can. For we'll probably have a wide range of listeners to the podcast, so break it down a little bit in kind of more accessible layman's terms on some of the things that you're doing. So if I'm, if I take sort of take a stab at it, you are working with a kind of a variety of clients to help them make the, basically make the move into impact investing. So setting up a strategy, sourcing um, investment uh, possibilities, researching them, actually, you know, making recommendations on specific investments, putting together an impact portfolio. Is that sort of a big part of my accurately? Describing that? That's exactly, that's exactly what we did in 2017. We worked with a couple of uh, nonprofits and foundations, both U.S. and Canada, to develop a strategy, a thesis, deal with all their capital flows and, 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 and the like, just as you described, um, and then actually develop a portfolio, a model, constru- you know, model, model out the, the construction, um, and then find deals, structure those deals, negotiate the deals, and start to manage the deals. You'd also think through governance issues um, if required, HR issues if required. Um, and that was what we did in 2017. And we've really sort of, uh, we, we haven't really sort of, we, we've stopped doing that work entirely in 2018 in order to focus solely on the development of our fund, which we're, like I mentioned earlier, um, we're soft launching right now and, and formally fundraising for by, by November. Great. And so I'm happy to tell you a little bit about that. I would say that the work on the consulting side, our specialty had always been, um, we always offer gender lens investing or a deep impact approach that dealt with equitable practices, um, equitable products and services, whatever it would be. It wouldn't be just general impact investing. We always had that, that deeper focus, which really stemmed from um, some of the work that we did at Grand Challenges Canada, which was funded by Global Affairs Canada. So, um, so I'm happy to tell you about the fund now, if you want. Yeah, but I, or I can, that'd be great. But, yeah, please do. So our fund is um, domestically focused, uh, Canada and the Northeast U.S. Um, I would want to call out a partnership that we have with the Youth Social Innovation Capital Fund and SHEEO. Together, the three of us were awarded Ontario uh, Ministry of Economic Development Growth Financing through the Social Enterprise Development Fund strategy in order to place capital into Ontario-based and, and servicing social enterprise. So we're, we're raising a fund around that small pool of capital. We're looking at uh, early stage organizations because we believe that, that innovation is incredibly important to the development of uh, a robust economy. We also think that um, uh, not just from an economic development point of view, but in terms of setting the tone for culture, for diversity and inclusion, uh, a top-down role is really important. But I think we we, we actually think the, the bottom-up approach is is really really powerful, uh, more so. And so we're financing organizations that are product or service oriented, software, hardware, hardware as in technology, or hardware as simple you know, fast-moving consumer good kind of product. It can be government or business or consumer oriented. It really doesn't matter. But we are focusing on organizations tackling certain themes. Um, that impact marginalized populations the most. And marginalized populations mean women and girls, 
it means people of color, it means newcomers, it means uh, rural populations, it means those with uh, mental health issues, it means those with accessibility issues. And of course, none of those demographics live in isolation. Of course, uh, you'll have double, triple, quadruple minorities in many, many cases. And the themes that impact these people the most are what we're targeting. And they are education and training, financial inclusion, food security, sustainable fashion, mental health, sexual rights, uh, and sexual health, reproductive rights, and gender-based violence writ large. So these seven categories, and this is, this is based on our top-down research, which is secondary research, not primary research, uh, is, are these seven sectors that can impact marginalized populations the most. Of course, as I rhyme them off, you know that a ton of impact investments are already going into these areas, some of them more so than others, of course. So it's not as though we're creating necessarily new markets everywhere. And our thesis is, as opposed to being sector-specific, to be theme-specific. So be looking at, to be looking at CEOs who are women or C-suite people who are, are women or minorities, of course, um, have boards that are diverse and inclusive, have employment practices that are equitable, diverse, and inclusive, have products and services that are geared to marginalized populations, and have supply chains and value chains that are holistic in terms of their employment practices, their procurement, their distribution systems. You don't have to, we don't have, we're not looking for deals that have everything, but we are looking for um, opportunities that have multiple areas. And as soon as you start to, to fit a few of these things together, these, these pieces together, you'll find undercapitalized founders in underrepresented markets with products and services that might not be known by the traditional white male VC and a clientele who isn't really well recognized or understood by said traditional VCs. And so there is a feel-good component to what we're doing, no doubt. There's an ethical and moral case to be, to be made. And while I don't like to always make the business case, we're also exploiting a market opportunity because no, not many VCs come into the space. And of course, big banks, BDC or whatever, isn't, uh, aren't providing debt. Um, so there's, there's a, an opportunity to be backing really strong entrepreneurs with developed markets that are spending them with products and services that no one's funding. And so this is essentially the core of uh, Marigold's thesis. It's a $20 million fund that we're looking at. And so in the Canadian space, that makes it a, a real fund, uh, economically viable. It's not a massive fund, of course, but as a demo fund, it's an appropriate target. And no one is doing anything like this in Canada. The closest we'll get is organizations looking at women in technology. And access to capital is a huge issue, as you know, David. So we're not saying that that's a bad idea. But it might be under the same old terms with the same old structures where the women are maybe using the same techniques that have been used uh, in a patriarchal system to suppress them in the past, which may or may not be helpful. I'm, I'm making an editorial comment there, of course, but the point is that might not be enough to actually alleviate some of the social biases and structures that we have. And our approach um, is one that we feel can be replicated by others, even if they don't have the, the same mandate we do or the same thesis we do, um, which is where the power of this demonstrative $20 million fund uh, we feel really is. So that's what we're up to as we're starting to raise this fund. Yeah, I'm, I'm, thanks for that. That's great. I'm, uh, I'm really curious about your kind of comment towards the end around 
you're looking at kind of structuring deals and um, offering financing on terms that maybe are more favorable. And you mentioned sort of, as opposed to sort of traditional forms that are, you know, in the sort of more patriarchal system where, you know, it's maybe not all that conducive to success for, you know, women in technology as an example. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit on that? I'm interested in, I, I'm, you know, I'm not from the VC space myself. And so I'd be curious if you can kind of elaborate on that. Are there examples of, uh, of that you can yeah. sort of illustrate the point with? Yeah, sure. So I think we know that 99% of the companies in Canada are small and medium enterprise, not large corporations. So the vast majority are small and medium enterprise. But we also know that VC only goes to 2 or 3% of all companies. I think I can actually make that number is higher than it actually is. Hmm. So the vast majority of, uh, small, of companies in Canada are not receiving VC dollars. VC dollars use the Babe Ruth approach, <laughs> meaning you're swinging for the fences all the time. And this is the power law distribution, the logarithmic models that I, I, I mentioned uh, earlier. You have to return the fund uh, as essentially a, a common statement within, within a, a VC fund. Every deal has, has to have the ability to make the fund. It has to return the fund. And when you think about dilution, um, because you're investing in equity now, but hopefully this company raises capital in the future because it's going well and growing, you're gonna get di- your dollars are going to get diluted. Your position is going to get diluted. So you need to make sure that you own enough at a certain valuation now so that in seven to eight years when you're exiting, you can still return the fund. If you raise a hundred, if you have a hundred million dollar fund and you own ten percent upon dilution, that deal now needs to be worth a billion dollars upon exit for you to get your hundred million back. If we think about the Canadian VC landscape, how many billion dollar exits do we hear about? Mm-hmm. How many billion dollar exits plus do we hear about in the United States? More, but my point is, we swing for the fences because of the certain model that we have. So essentially, you've got one or two fund makers per fund, you have a bunch of goose eggs and maybe one or two singles. This, this is, you know, the listeners must be aware of this general, general model of how, how the 10 mm-hmm. deals kind of shake out per fund. What we're saying is quite different. We're saying, let's use a Moneyball approach. If we're going to use pop culture for a second, talk about Michael Lewis's book. Why don't we hit a bunch of singles and doubles and get on base as much as we can? If we start thinking about different kinds of capital and look at funding different kinds of businesses with different kinds of exits, maybe we can perform just as well and better from a downside protection perspective as well as an upside maximization perspective as a traditional VC fund. And maybe not just financially, but maybe that's actually better for the economy and community overall. What do you think? Doesn't that sound brilliant? So how would we maybe go about doing that? Maybe we could use things like blended finance and to cut through the jargon there, blended finance normally means public and private financing coming together, um, maybe on the same terms, which is called peri passu, but oftentimes on public funding coming in as a concessionary or subsidized position in order to leverage in private capital, uh, more risk, risk capital-oriented positions on top of that. Put that aside, but use the same idea of blended finance. What if we could provide some debt financing and on top of that, provide a lawyer, a royalty, and on top of that, provide an equity kicker. So three types of financing. One is a very stable sort of cash flow based on an asset, debt. 
One is based on cash flow from top line revenue or royalty. And one is based uh, more like traditional VC, which is equity. You're buying, you're buying a piece of the company in order to hopefully see that company size grow and grow and grow. And then our position grows. Three types of capital could be used in theory to fund the company, that same amount that you'd find uh, via equity. And those capital flows all work differently. They all have different risk return profiles. They provide liquidity at different rates. And you can actually return your 15 to 20% or whatever it is you're targeting based on how you structure that deal. The traditional VC, if you actually look at benchmarks, we're seeing that the top decile, the top 10% of funds, of VC funds, perform extremely well. The next, the, the, the medium sort of 50% of funds don't perform that well. An 8% return is a really good return. An 8% return is not what they're targeting. They're targeting a 20 to 30% internal rate of return, net of fees, to their investors. But most funds don't actually return that. So what I'm saying is, can you structure something that gets an 8 to 12% return that isn't based on an equity deal, which is waiting for some sort of future market liquidity, liquidity event that may or may not happen that you, you don't have control of? Yes, you can probably structure this through a blended finance arrangement or, or even not just using a royalty or something else. So that's, that's one answer. There's a different way to structure things that can return just as well, if not better, with more downside protection than the old VC model. The next thing I want to say is, and thanks for letting me elaborate on this. Many companies aren't actually VC backable because they're not assumed to the moon rocket ship hockey stick growth model. Meaning, you know, mm -hmm. as long as we get $2 million of injected capital right now, we're going to grow our annual our, our rate of revenue to $3 million this year and then $10 million next and, you know, soon we'll be at the moon. Many companies have lots of HR requirements, inventory requirements, may still have bricks and mortar um, elements to them that doesn't make them a bad business model but it does mean that there's more friction in the model and therefore their operating expenses uh, their sgna uh, maybe even their their gross margin uh, aren't as clean as a a frictionless piece of software that is highly sticky and so vcs will not necessarily look at that because it won't make the fund but nevertheless, you have a highly profitable business that is looking for funding, and that's a missed opportunity. So you have those kinds of companies sitting there that are not getting capital from the V side from equity and aren't necessarily ready for the super risk-averse debt side coming from financial institutions or a BDC or something like that. So there is a pool of companies there that are just waiting, kind of organically growing slowly, but could use an injection of capital to help really grow. And the last thing I'll say, that's part two. The last thing I'll say is then for overall economic development and community development, our model, and it's, this is not something that we've developed on our own. This is based on many other organizations using this model. It's a growing model. If more companies survive, which a lot of them die, of course, when you're talking about one fund maker or two fund makers in a traditional VC model, you're essentially saying the eight losers, we don't care about you. We need to back the one or two you know, winning horses or jockeys or whatever, whatever you want to describe the, the winners as. Maybe eight out of 10 is a better number or 10 out of 10 is a better number. I'm not saying you know, everyone's a winner, but maybe, maybe that's actually better for economic development overall. And a collaborative abundance mindset is better than a competitive scarcity mindset. 
And this is really where the patriarchal system, in my mind, comes up um, and where some power dynamics really are, are at play. Maybe that's not the best for community and for economic development overall. Maybe a bit more of a, a, a slower growth pattern makes a lot of sense. That's part three. The very last thing I'll say is that um, when thinking about marginalized populations, the businesses that they build, and this is a generalization, but this was based on a lot of research that we did at Grand Challenges Canada, which is focused on global health solutions, both products and services and emerging markets. We found that there are a lot of women involved. We found that a lot of marginalized populations were involved as founders. Many of them would build, I would say, service-oriented businesses or businesses that were more integrated into a supply chain than their, their white male counterpart, expat counterparts, who were often more focused on building the shiny, sexy product at the end of the, the value chain. So the, the, question that the question that I'm asking, that we asked is, how does this then tie to community development or economic development overall? If these companies are actually more integrated into a, a value chain, if these companies are actually more connected to their customers and their communities, they're probably serving those communities and driving economic development growth uh, better than just a product or service that could be developed. So we're taking that thesis here into Canada as well, saying, you know, based on the research that we have, a lot of marginalized populations, um, founders of marginalized populations are doing similar work and we're testing that right now. So that's the fourth uh, and last element of uh, my answer to you on how to better structure for different types of businesses that are serving different populations with different products and services. That's fantastic. Like, again, I'm left at a point of I've got a lot I, I want to ask you about all of that and I'm sure I'm not going to get to all of it. Uh, can you, maybe one thing, I'll sort of tease out. It sounds to me when you're sort of talking about the different ways that you, you know, three different ways you can structure an investment and going for kind of singles and doubles uh, with a higher probability of success and a lower rate of return is, is you know, more attractive overall from a, a variety of perspectives. Is is it the case then that, like the argument is the the types of the way that you're structuring the financing in and of itself is helping it's more favorable to the business. And so that in, is one, one way in which you're kind of mitigating the risk. And so increasing the likelihood that you're actually getting on base to begin with and not striking out. Is that fair? So we're certainly lowering the, the cost of capital. Uh, you know, I, I provided a, an example where we, we theoretically structured three types of financing onto, on top of each other. So obviously the debt and the royalty lowers the cost of capital from pure, a pure equity play, mm -hmm. which is pretty darn expensive. So, you know, the, the debt is tied to a balance sheet. So it's really disconnected from the actual well-being of company. If there's a nice asset, though, that or inventory or something that you can lean against, it's a nice predictable type of financing to provide. The royalty really rides the company's well-being very well. And that's really a really strong alignment um, with with founders. That doesn't have to be cheap though. You know, you can still, if you sort of calculate this to a, an IRR equivalent or a timeline equivalent sort of approach, that doesn't have to be cheap capital. But the good news is you're not waiting for some external market event um, that you can't control to liquidate your position and exit that, that play. You've kind of structured that in. And so there is some favorability there. Um, on the other side of the market as an investor, as a VC, you're providing liquidity to investors who, if they're Canadian, 
are probably risk averse and conservative. And if their foundations are, you know, sort of dipping their toes into the water of the space and you're providing them with something that's really comforting, which is liquidity. And of course you can still do that um, in a traditional, traditional fund model. So I would say that there is much, a much greater sense of alignment. It's lower costs of capital. And if you think that the deal is going really, really well, you could provide a small kicker on top, an equity kicker, where you own just a fraction of the company that you can kind of hang on to if the, if the company does really well. So I hope that answers your question. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah? I, think, okay. I think so. I guess the, the ultimate question is, what allows you to get on base at a higher rate um, than a traditional VC where they're making these investments and they're expecting nine out of 10 to fail because the, you know, the one, yeah. one that they hit? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I think it really comes down to this is called um, a a VC backout model. You know, they'll they'll calculate um, what they need to hit when they're exiting um, before they even do a deal. And this is kind of what I did when I was talking about. You know, you come in at a company and a VC, if they're coming in at a Series A round, will own twenty. They'll want to target that round. They'll want to own twenty five to thirty percent of the company. That's super standard. They want a sizable chunk a minority stake, but a really big minority stake, so that as they get diluted, right. because they're only going to be able to follow on with a pro rata round once, probably, and then they're dry, they want to, they're going to get diluted. So they're going to have to make sure that they own a sizable chunk after dilution in order to return the fund, so to speak. And so they're tossing away thousands upon thousands of deals that may be completely viable because they've calculated that, that those deals can't return the fund. The market size isn't big enough okay. or the company can't grow into the market fast enough for a seven-year exit. And so they're throwing all of these deals away. But when you think about a royalty, let's think about norm, normally royalties will look at a three or four X. So if I throw in $1, I want three or four back. And I'll traditionally structure it to be a seven to eight-year period that I think that money will be returned. If you calculate the IRR on that deal, that's traditional VCs sort of return land, that deal never has to have a billion dollar exit. It just needs to return my money, you know, very selfishly. If I feel that it's going to grow top line so that I can get my 4X back, then it's an investable deal. So that opens up a ton of opportunities for me to look at as a funder that have been passed up by the traditional equity options warrants, VC type investors. Got it. Yep. That, that's clear. Okay. There's another point I wanted to touch on it wasn't a major one but i was i was curious about it you you were sort of talking about this abundance versus scarcity mindset and you kind of mentioned it sort of the traditional patriarchal i guess vc land where it's this sort of competitive you know we're looking for the one home run and let everything else fail and that's fine and and uh, i i'm curious do you think that there is something inherently i mean i'm thinking about some very personal anecdotes that that kind of relate to this and i'm wondering if you is intended with your comment. Do you think that there's something about traditional patriarchal structures that is more geared towards a scarcity mindset, sort of this zero sum game type of mentality? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you want me to elaborate, but yeah, absolutely. That wasn't, that was intended with the, the comment. Yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to hear you your know, thoughts on that. So let, let's focus on the, on, on financing though. Like uh, I, I, cause I think I could really go off on a, Sure. A big tangent here. <laughs> okay, but you know, you think think about think about a VC's portfolio, where most often he and he having gone to a, a set number of schools um, with a certain number of um, 
degrees or type of degrees, is investing in a number of companies that he understands that many times the founders look like him and often is, are pro- solving problems that he wants solved or can relate to, you're starting to really have a ton of biases there. So that's, a, that's an obvious point. And so you start looking at the, let's say you look at the thousand deals you look at per annum. And you, know, you say, we can only do one company in enterprise fintech focusing on small to medium enterprise solving this middle office function, blah, 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 blah. You start to categorize, categorize, categorize. And we can only pick one of those. And, and I guess what my fundamental question is, why can you only pick one in that category? Is there no way that the, the other 50 companies in that category could somehow collaborate to build a stronger market? Maybe not in all cases, but probably in some. The fact that it's essentially never asked within the traditional VC landscape is maybe a question mark. And that's the big question that we see. Is there not a way for you to back several companies that are doing very similar things so that they could potentially partner? You see this in accelerators and incubators. You don't see this in very many portfolios, of course, uh, of a VC's portfolio. And you certainly often see portfolios as opposed to communities. Now, I know in the past few years, VCs have been talking about their communities much more, and they've actually hired community managers to work with these portfolio companies. But the amount that these portfolios actually interact um, beyond just, you know, here's my best practices, here's a hiring tip, but actually collaborate in terms of um, contracts, procurement, distribution, whatever it might be, is very limited. And so this is, the, this is that mindset that I'm, that I'm thinking about. The VC model as it currently exists sort of forces that on us, mm-hmm. um, I think. And this is where, where I think we can still use, we can use existing systems, both financially and legal, um, that exist to still change enough of the financial system and enough of these call-out, enough of these biases um, or almost dogmatic practices and question them. I don't know if we're right, but questioning them and challenging them and trying something new is, is what we're trying to do at Marigold. So those are the, uh, we, I, we could go, that was a, David, you asked a really large question, but with respect to VC finance, that's what I wanted to speak to around the patriarchal um, mm-hmm. system or biases. Yeah. And I'm, I, I could talk to you about this stuff all day. So I'm going to try to also avoid the, uh, the temptation to really dive more broadly into that, that question. I mean, I, I and I, I don't know if this is intended. I, I mean, anecdotally, and this may just be a unique thing to me and my my wife, but my wife, interestingly, just enjoys, like, there's whole categories of board games, for instance, that are collaborative in nature, where the, you're, you're sort of playing together to win as a group against the sort of the rules of the game and not against each other. And that's a whole category I didn't even know existed. I'm sort of, um, I like competition in particular when it comes to trivial things like board games and sports and that more than she is. And maybe that's just a function of, of us as, as individuals and not our, our gender. But I couldn't help but think about that when you started thinking about sort of this abundance versus scarcity mindset. I'm also aware of, increasingly aware of how, how much, I don't want to be too melodramatic about it, but how much brainwashing there is, or at least limited thought that happens or a narrow scope, a narrow view of the world when you come up through the traditional, you know, fi- through traditional financial education, I, I kind of did an MBA and CFA and you're just sort of went through the traditional investment world where you just are taught that investing 
you know, is a zero sum game and that, that purpose and profit can't, you know, that if you're going to do the right thing, that that's obviously going to come at a cost and, um, you know, you can't, you can't generate the same types of returns and do something that's good for the world at the same time. And there's a lot of these just sort of assumptions that you don't question and you realize one day, or I, I did anyway, it's like, right, wait a minute. Why is that the case? Where was that ever written that that's just a, a truth, a universal truth? And I think that's what you're sort of getting at here is this traditional VC model is like, wait, wait a minute. Why is that? Is that the only way? Is it that even the best way? And so I, I really appreciate um, this because I, I, this is an area that, not my background and I've, I've never sort of heard described in the terms that you're, you're talking about it. So um, I think it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I, you know, I think the second that you as an inspiring, uh, aspiring investor go to the ground and actually talk to a founder, um, you know, rural emerging market true base of the pyramid is the best case <laughs> um, in my experience, but, you know, just seeing something on the ground with your own eyes versus uh, running numbers and, you know, reviewing a deck or whatever it is you're reviewing, running dust due diligence, you know, it's eye-opening, right? You, mm-hmm. you, you smelling something, touching something is so much more powerful than just running numbers at your desk. And so, yeah, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying because the, the idea that you have uh, such a you have blinders on at your desk. You're comfortable with everything there. You know exactly where your water bottle sits. All of this, all of this crap, mm-hmm. and you're then thrown into uh, unfamiliar territory or uncomfortable waters or whatever it might be. And you know you now have the chance to experience something. And I think that's the the key word: experience. And experience means eye opening. Mm-hmm. And eye opening to me, and, I, and this is what I'm hearing with you say as well. Uh, meant no longer having to think about, and this is me again, looking back and connecting the dots, me hating capitalism. It's a strong word, but I would probably say in my angry early 20s, it was pretty close to that. Uh, You know, I was ignorant and angry, but (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. not sure what to do with capitalism. To think that, you know, I had to volunteer and be on the grassroots and, 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 instead of thinking about how to actually use capitalism, use finance for, as a power for good. And that idea is the, the one-pocket thinking, right? You don't have to slave away at a job you hate during the week in order to then volunteer your time on the weekend or cut a donation on the weekend. There are ways, and this is what impact investing at its you know, best sense is uh, trying to achieve, there are ways to do those two things, make some money, feel good, work, whatever, um, simultaneously. And, I, and I, all I'm trying to get at is that experiential um, light bulb flash or, you know, the fall of the apple or whatever it might be, I think is the, the best and most powerful way that many people sort of uh, kind of clue into the power of, of impact investing writ large. So that was a really aside sort of tangent. But anyway, no, I, 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 I wanted to comment on, on, on yours because I, I, I really feel that I got it once I actually talked to entrepreneurs on the ground. Hmm. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. So just to sort of move back a, a little bit. So you guys right now, so you've, you've raised some money and still raising money for, for your fund. You've, I guess you said you're sort of soft launching it. You're starting to make investments. Have you made investments and talk a little bit about kind of how you're kind of coming up with deal flow and um, is it Canadian businesses? Just maybe talk a little bit more about Yeah. Yeah. So no deals done um, as of, what are we today? We're October 15th. So no deals as of October 15th. We are looking to make 
three by the end of this calendar year and two by the end of November. So we are certainly um, circling in on a number of uh, great opportunities. They are all Canadian right now. They're all women founders. Um, they're all tackling issues that impact marginalized populations. We, we are seeing two pieces of software. We're seeing one in sustainable fashion. We're seeing a couple in media that I'll tell you about. And they, they're all at sort of series, uh, pre-series A seed rounds, meaning you know they've had friends and family and angel money in the past. This is their first sort of foray into institutional uh, raising. So they're all, none of them are profitable, but they're all revenue generating as well. What's really interesting is our deal flow. Of course, we're getting deal flow from other investors. But you know what's most interesting is if you see that comment I made earlier about financing underrepresented, underrepresented, undercapitalized founders, you know, they all talk with one another. This is the fascinating point. We're not going to universities or NGOs or a ton of VCs and finding deal flow, as, as many would suspect. We're not going to conferences and finding. We are, we're doing all of those things. But we're actually, our best deal flow is coming from business networks, entrepreneur networks, because the underrepresented all are supporting one another and themselves. And so this is a really, uh, this is not proprietary in any way. And you know, any, any investor will say, we'll have, we have proprietary deal flow. This is not proprietary, but this just goes to speak to how untapped this, this um, entrepreneur segment is. So the number of folks that have had decent conversations with us and then introduced us to their other entrepreneur friends, um, I can't name the number. So this is, this is how we're finding a lot of the deal flow right now. I'm not to say, not to say that that, that um, source of pipeline won't dry up, but right now there's no one in Canada offering a product like this. And so we've had a, a really strong response from entrepreneurs, and we've not even announced that we're officially open for, for business yet. So all that to say, why don't I tell you a little bit more about the companies? We've got a couple of media companies, and if you know anything about media, you know that media is going to a much more community-driven, locally-oriented approach that is developed in part with communities. And so the voice of marginalized populations has a, a much stronger possibility of coming through. Um, we, we understand the membership and subscription models much better now um, since we've seen how a number of paywalls work. And so uh, we're seeing a, a strong market trend uh, to growth and towards this, this community hyper-local model. So we've got a couple of uh, organizations that we're looking at there. We've got sustainable fashion, of course, is a, a really big issue we, from both an environmental as well as from a social perspective. And so we've got a couple of deals we're looking at where um, founders are designing and then manufacturing off-site and importing. And they're doing so in more environmentally responsible ways. They're um, looking at getting or tackling fast fashion um, by developing different kinds of products that are more biodegradable, of course, um, and that have a longer shelf life. So you're actually slowing the consumption habits and that are working on, re what's the word I'm looking for, procurement practices to actually, at end of life of product, um, take on the products and, and dispose of them uh, properly. So we've got a couple of companies there. That's a huge market, as you're, you're likely aware. Um, and then there's a couple of companies that we're looking at. I'll tell you about one that is looking at um, 
working on diversity and inclusion within the workplace. So this kind of connects to employee engagement, but it also looks at um, wages and um, responsibilities within an organization. And there's a couple of organizations working on, on software as well as consulting arrangements to, to better equip companies to have their internal organization represent what's actually outside um, in the country of Canada or US or wherever we're looking. So there's, there's been no short of, of really interesting deals um, that we've been looking at thus far, but we're always open to hearing about more. So there, there's where we're at. Um, stay tuned for, I guess, end of November when we're looking to announce our first two. That's awesome. Very cool. That's, a, that's an exciting time for you as well, then, to be that close to being making your first investments. Yeah, um, absolutely. And and these are you know these are demonstrative of the rest of the fund, so they play a really important role for us. You know, we're working on one other thing, David. If I can talk about it. Yeah, um, please. We are working on something called the New Power Investing Forum, which is November seventh, which is the the morning of the Social Finance Forum uh, here in Toronto, as well as the same day as Move the Dial. Um, that's taking place here in Toronto. And this is something that really has been in our mind for a really long time. We increasingly in the impact investing space have more and more screens or tools or frameworks to analyze environmental risks or you know, close to us um, uh, gender risks. And so we have more and more of these tools that evaluate companies, how to evaluate companies, I'm sorry. And, and we think that's a great step in the right direction. What we're really interested in is Simon Sinek's Start With Why, um, Why, How, and then finally What. You know, the tools that I just mentioned uh, help you better analyze the what. It doesn't necessarily speak to the why or the how or the who. And those three pieces are most often internal to a funding organization. And so long story short, we're bringing together a bunch of funders, both public and private, small and large, for-profit, non-profit, to talk about the who, the how, and the why they fund, um, how decisions are made, the deals that they um, structure and why, um, the informal versus formal decision-making processes, the management team, the boards, the investment committees, all the various people involved and all the processes involved in order to think about how best to use finance as a tool for social change. A screen is only as good as those who are using it. And so if we don't actually think about who and how and why, we're not actually using those tools to our, our, our best, um, the best possibilities or best possible outcomes. So this event is trying to bring people together, um, all, all different types of funders, to talk about these practices in order to share challenges but also best practices, regardless of their thesis, regardless of their mandate, in order to better represent society writ large, um, since we know funding across the, the spectrum has some, some um, room to improve, of course. And the idea here, of course, is we're trying all of the stuff out at Marigold. So Marigold is a bit of a demonstration um, for what we're talking about at this event. But we're also thinking that this is an opportunity for VCs, for foundations, for family offices, for nonprofits to start talking about this and then incorporating some of these practices themselves in order to essentially walk the, walk the talk. So that event is on November 7th. We've got a report that's going to come out um, highlighting the outcomes of that event, as well as a signals report that this discusses what's next. So I wanted to call that out because that's essentially the same time we're starting our fundraising. And we think that that community building, that network building, 
event won't be a one-off. It can actually grow to something as powerful, if not more powerful than the fund, uh, our own fund itself. So that's really cool. That is the event. Yeah. Is that, is that to, sort of open for people who are listening who are interested in that something that applies to them? Are they, is it an open event? And can you give people information about it if it is? Yeah, it's on our website right now. Um, okay. So you can, the New Power Investing Forum, NPI Forum is the way it's listed on our website. You know, you can see who the speakers are and the facilitators. You can see who the participants are. We update it every couple of days. So it is open to, it is open to, to funders. Um, we are trying to bring funders in uh, under essentially a, a cone of silence or Chatham House rules to discuss. But we also want to bring some public in to see what some of the funders are actually up to. We think this is a really powerful concept and we, we hope we're right with that idea. So take a look on the website, NPI Forum, New Power Investing Forum, and all the details are there. That's great. And for everybody listening, it's www.marigold-capital.com. Yes, that's really you. should have yeah, said that. Really Fascinating. I have a couple more questions. We'll, and we'll sort of aim to wrap it up because I don't want to keep you too, too long here. But um, can you, just to switch gears for a second, um, or as we transition out here, are there other players in the impact investment space that you either... I mean, I, I'm not going to be too, too prescriptive about this, but um, are there other impact investments that you've made personally that you think are really cool and there's organizations doing a really great thing, other impact investors, VCs that you really respect? You can sort of take that in any direction you want. Yeah. So the the first shout out would be to Serona, Gerhard Priest and Serge Leverchesson at Serona. You know, I they took a chance on me, to be quite honest. I was pretty versed with microfinance um, when, when they hired me. I was pretty good at doing some basic you know, communications and marketing, but I hadn't cut a deal before and they took a chance on me and they really, really taught me so much of what I know. They are leaders in the space. Um, they're extremely humble. They're extremely dedicated, passionate, and, when, and, and full of integrity. So when, when I think about the Canadian landscape, you know, I can't say it starts or ends with them, but for me, both personally and professionally, they, they hold a very, very dear spot. And one of the biggest, yeah, one of the biggest things that I, I, I take away from that experience is we often got the comment that, you know, people thought we were a 12 person shop when we were three or four. We seemed so institutionalized. We punched so much above our weight. And I, I've always taken that. Um, with me to any other organization, you know, having such uh, policies and procedures documented, um, having amazing communication, really putting that effort to to make a relationship with everybody. There, there was some tremendous learning there. So they aren't the only ones. I'll, I'll give you a few more, but I learned a ton from those guys at cool. Serona. I invested in, why don't I call out one more? Sure. Um, and the, I'll, I'll call out two more. So, and, and there won't be any surprises here. So when I was at RBC, we we were investing in both funds, so indirect investing as well as direct investing into companies. And so I'll call out an indirect deal. We invested in, I think, Renewal 2 at the time. Mm. So Renewal, of course, is based in Vancouver. And the team at the time that I knew was Joel Solomon and Paul Richardson, Nicole Bradbury, and uh, Kate Story were also there. And so their passion, integrity, their focus on on impact was all there. 
but they were also so focused on making deals work from a financial perspective, from a market building perspective, from a strategic sense in terms of the support they provided to entrepreneurs. They, with, with that deal, I learned that there are times when acting like a, being a traditional VC, not just acting like one, but actually being a traditional VC makes a ton of sense. That there are, there is no reason to sacrifice necessarily any um, financial or business uh, managerial discipline just because this is the impact space. Now, I'm not saying that that didn't, that wasn't the case at Serona, but I really took that to heart with with the renewal, um, mm. the renew, renewal team. So that was a really great lesson learned that I had uh, the chance to learn there. The last is um, again a really common name in the space, and I think he was on your podcast. When I was at RBC, the very first deal I did was actually with Liat Gallis while she was at Social Capital Partners. And mm. Social Capital Partners is founded uh, by Bill Young. So the very first deal I did while RB- with RBC was with Bill Young and, and Liat. And the idea was a really interesting one. We, we at RBC bought a portion of its loan portfolio. And this is that loan portfolio that was financing you know, the Mr. Lubes and the active mm-hmm. green and Rosses and some restaurants and things like that and providing that loan where the rate would actually go down based on the number of community hires. Um, so a really piece, a really interesting piece of financing. And the idea was to buy that portfolio or piece of it and then see if we could get other business units within the bank interested in some of the, the loan products and the structures uh, that SEP was offering to actually act as like a junior lender take on a bit more risk to some of the more senior lenders within the bank. So the idea was to bring an innovative product into a really traditional financial institution. So, uh, and I don't know if you've heard any of that story from Bill Young or anyone mm-hmm. at SCP, but the idea here, which was, fi- was fascinating, was the strategic uh, Trojan horse, if you will, mm-hmm. of making a really solid deal. It was, you know, to be honest, I want to, I won't, um, to, uh, declare anything confidential. It was a very strong deal. No one would get upset at RBC for the deal that I made, but that wasn't the end. The idea was actually to get business units involved beyond the social finance unit at, at RBC because we made such a compelling offer to them as well. And so that's str- the strategic, the forward thinking strategic mindset to always be thinking of the next thing, even when you're still working on the thing mm-hmm. prior to that. You know, thinking about policy, thinking about government, every player coming together. Uh, Bill Young really opened my eyes to thinking about the future in a in a far more expanded strategic sense than I was used to. And so that was another piece that I really learned. So you know, I can't put all of those those comments together, but I would say that being agile and thinking extremely strategically while also being extremely tactical and technical some of the biggest pieces, I, I guess, that I, you know, um, through everyone would aggregate as some of the biggest lessons learned. So those are the three that I'd call out for now. No surprises, of course, but those are my takes on, on those three. That's really, uh, that's really cool. I love that that's kind of comes full circle on that, you know, that conversation I had with, uh, with Bill in our first episode, uh, uh, where he did talk about that as really some of the, what he thought was some of the best work he's ever done. Um, so real cool. Uh, you also mentioned Liat, who I guess, did you overlap with her at Grand Challenges? Yeah, so Liat was my first hire at Grand Challenges oh, Canada. Right. <laughs> um, 
I, I, I stole her from Bill Young. <laughs> oh, wow. Very cool. That's, um, yeah. So she was my first, she was my first hire. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, it's just, it's funny to, you know, as we kind of talked about it right at the beginning, all the, the ways and these you know, interconnections between everybody in the industry is, it's, it's interesting to, to find those connections. So we'll, maybe we'll wrap up just with one final question. I've asked this to a yeah, lot of the absolutely. guests and I sort of say it as like, I kind of dream of the day in which, um, you know, my daughter grows up and it's just the case that, you know, perfect purpose and profit are not seen as mutually exclusive, that businesses understand that, you know, their, their actual impact on the world at large is, uh, you know, can't be ignored, that they can't ex- pursue profit at the exclusion of every other um, impact that they have, that investors, you know, just view it as part of normal course of business that you you can't make investments out without regard for the impact that those investments have on the world at large and that that will just be obvious and, and commonplace. So my question to you then is, do you think that that's a, a thing that will happen? And if so, sort of what type of time frame would you, would you, would you guess? Yeah. So um, I was at one of the very first um, global impact investing network, GIN AGMs uh, representing Serona. I think the first or the second one. And we were talking amongst ourselves about in, ten, in 20 years, impact investing would no longer be a ghetto, but impact investing would be investing. And so that was what? That was 2009 or something like that. So that's this. we're essentially 10 years later. Um, so I don't think we're 10 years away, but we're, maybe we're pretty close. I would love to say that by 2030, um, you know, thinking about the SDGs, we can actually say that all investments are all impact investments are investments. The one thing you know, the one thing that we know is I, I, I talk about this when I, I teach a class at the Schulich School of Business, and I often um, speak to other university students and uh, about the the growing market in terms of uh, uh, job opportunities in this space. And I talk about being on the right side of history, and I talk about young people being the very last generation. I can either make the world a better place or a worse place. So the, the bet is that we know that we have to do something now and we assume that we're going to make the right decision to do something. So the only question is how long? And so, you know, I want to be optimistic and let's say within the next 10 to 15 years. So let's just align with SDG uh, timelines. We know that accounting standards are changing. So from a, well, very slowly, we know from a top-down perspective that all of the externalities that aren't included on financial statements will be um, placed onto financial statements for public companies. We know that's going to be tried a couple of years in a couple of countries. So that's probably going to be commonplace within seven to 10 years. We know that movements like B Corp or whatever other third-party audit um, firms continue to grow. We know that provincially and statewide in North America that the tax systems and the legal systems are, are slowly changing. So I guess all points, you know, um, seem to be changing in in our favor. Um, Political systems in in the United States uh, cause some concern, to be honest. So that's a big wrinkle. You mentioned your daughters. I have two daughters as well. Fortunate to be in Canada, but uh, I'm I'm wondering about, you know, what we see in the U.S. is pendulum swings from a political sense. And I don't want to talk politics too much, but we see pendulum swings. And so I'm curious to see if anything like that comes in, in into into the federal system here in Canada, we've seen it, of course, uh, in Ontario, 
with mm-hmm. the last election. So there's a lot of optimism on my part, to be honest. But I also want to say, you know, uh, call out my position of privilege and my biases and say, maybe things aren't going as well as I think, you know. <laughs> um, and if I looked from a different lens, maybe that's not so great. I'm going to stick with my answer of 10 to 12 years to cut it <laughs> short. But I, and I hope I'm right. I really do. But the, some of the, the micro things that we're seeing, the meso cycle and the macro cycle, I think I'm right. But the meso, the, the micro stuff that we're seeing uh, makes me pause. I really, I'm really not so certain then. That's, yeah, that's, uh, I completely understand where you're coming from. Uh, that resonates a lot with me. So that's great. I appreciate it. In the interest of time, I'll, I won't dive too too much further into that even though i'd like to so listen i listen i really appreciate you taking the time to uh to chat jonathan this has been really interesting and i think will be insightful and eye-opening for a lot of uh the listeners as well i hope anyway so um thanks a lot for taking the time i appreciate it yeah thank you it's, it's my pleasure and it was great to talk with you and yeah hopefully hopefully some some points were new and if they're old or challenging you know that's that's great too so thank you so much Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.